Hello and welcome to the Anvil podcast from Church's Bookshop. That's Linda. That's Georgia. And that's Andrew. And as always, uh, we don't claim to have any particular expertise or represent any particular organisation that we're a part of. We're just three friends having a chat and hoping that we can sharpen and challenge each other's minds in the process. So as promised, this week we're reviewing a book again. Um, The book we're reviewing is called The Man Who Broke Into St. Peter's. It's by Chick Yule. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And it's published by Instant Apostle. Um, So as we always say, if you want to buy it after you've heard us talking about it, go to your local Christian bookshop. A lot of them are still open for ordering. And if you have problems, contact Church's Bookshop on Facebook or on churchesbookshop.im. The reason we wanted to talk about this book is it deals a bit with abuse within the church and with issues around sort of forgiveness and justice in that context, um, which sort of picks up on some of what we talked about last week. I think going into recording this, the sort of events happening in America at the moment, all that tension in the wake of the murder of George Floyd is very heavy on all of our hearts. I think we all hope that, that some of the issues we're going to touch on today, although they're from a story about a very personal level of injustice and suffering, might maybe speak into some of the societal injustices and suffering that, that's playing out on the world stage at the moment. So, to start us off, um, what did we all think of it? Was there anything in particular that any of us liked or disliked about it? Well, I was quite excited that we got to review our first piece of fiction. Um, I do enjoy a good story, and it was definitely a good story. Yeah, so so many characters introduced with some really big, big themes going on. Um, And I think one of the things that I love about fiction is that you can dive into a big issue but without an obligation to sort of present it in a certain way you can just sort of stay true to your character and you're not necessarily making a statement or being preachy you're just um exploring a story um and i thought that it raised some really big issues and did manage to sort of examine them from a lot of different angles which i thought was very good yeah I don't think enjoyed is quite the right word with this book. Um, I found this book really challenging. I thought um, the story, uh, as Linda said, is really compelling. Um, And it does raise some really key issues for the church. I think it's a very timely book. So yeah, overall, I enjoyed isn't the right word, but intrigued, I think. is The book intrigued me. I think it's it's well-written, little clunky dialogue at times, but you can... That doesn't bother you too much once you're into the story, because the story is what really matters. Yes, I mean, I think I obviously enjoyed it, because it was my idea to review it for the podcast and make all of you read it as well. I think I would agree with Andrew if I had to criticise it. I would say that sometimes the dialogue and the sentence structure can be a bit clunky, but a lot of what he's writing about is very, very tough stuff to talk about, and particularly when it comes to the dialogue he's writing conversations that would be very hard to have in real life. And I suppose, to be fair, if we were talking about stuff like that in real life, our actual dialogue would probably be a bit clunky because it's, it's very hard to approach, approach these issues smoothly, I suppose. Yeah, I think the, the characters that he's chosen do help him with that. Because if you've got a reporter and a Church of England vicar having a conversation, then they're quite likely to go into some big themes probably talk quite in depth and especially when you then throw in a, a retired minister and and some of the other characters that you've got I think it would be hard to get away with the, that kind of dialogue in any other setting but I think it makes it work surprisingly well yeah and I think one of the things I loved about it was the inclusion of that reporter as one of the main characters who is 
kind of quite a staunch atheist really but he he ends up involved in this story and in healing some of the hurt that's happened in the church in this town and I I appreciated that I felt like there were several kind of simplistic traps that the story could have fallen into that it didn't and one of those was that not all the good guys were Christians and the bad guys were atheists there were some really flawed Christian characters and there were some really brilliant, amazing non-Christian characters and I really appreciated that. Yeah, don't, don't you hate it when, um, I think Christian films are even more guilty where the atheists mm. are the stereotypical villains. Um, it's just not realistic and I think if a story doesn't reflect reality then it doesn't tell us anything about ourselves. I think the value of a story, and particularly a story like this, is that it tells us a lot and it reflects reality and I think it does that really well. Yeah, I have to agree with that. I know what you're talking about was some of the some of the cheesier Christian cinema out there. Um, and I think as well as, you know, portraying Christians as the goodies and atheists as the baddies, they, they can also um, sort of play into our comfortable worldview as well, where the character development always ends with the the big bad atheist converting you know on the deathbed or uh, sorry that was a little bit too poignant uh, pointed but I, I liked that you could see development in both the Christian and atheist main characters and that although you did see the atheist warm towards the other point of view they they left that a bit open so yeah. there was yeah. no moment of conversion was there no kind of mm. Oh, he's a Christian well, now and it's all okay. I don't think it's a very <laughs> triumphant book. It, no. It's a book that tells of messy reality. You know, in reality, stories don't just end all neatly wrapped with a bow. In reality, you've got stories where people are hurt and it's too late to, for, for justice to be done, um, as is the case in this story, or um, the level of hurt is so great that it can never really be made, made right again. And equally, we're all on lifelong journeys in our relationship with faith and and people who who may start warming to faith you know they don't just convert because it's convenient or it's a good moment it, it's a long slow process i think this is a book that tells that that reality of sort of being just a small part of a bigger story really well i, was gonna say, I think i i really agree with what linda was saying about um the kind of the, you seeing that growth in the christian characters as well i appreciated that a lot of the story is told from the point of view of the vicar who's in charge of this church currently um when kind of historical sexual abuse comes to light and i appreciated that it allowed us to see a, a vicar in the situation not as just kind of the representation of a sort of bureaucratic body but as a human being who feels sort of not enough and insecure and worried and not not sure how to respond. And you see her stress and you see her humanity in that. And you see her, her real desperation to want to do the right thing and to want to help, but just feeling completely inadequate and wondering why on earth God's chosen her to be the one to respond to all this sort of decades-old hurt that's coming to light. Yeah, you get her really sort of stepping up to the plate and you kind of see her professionalism alongside her internal battle of, ah, they didn't train me for this in vicar school. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, who, because it's so easy sometimes to think of the church leaders in our life and think, well, they're the fount of all wisdom and know everything. But I mean, actually, who would cope well with a situation where there's a break-in at your church and suddenly this historical sex scandal comes to light and, and it's your parish. And yeah, it shows how she handles it really, really well, but it doesn't play into that stereotype of the the perfect church leader who has all the answers. 
yeah and i said it kind of it shows the impact on on everyone who comes into contact with, with this that it's not something that anyone can kind of just deal with and close close the book on and it's over that it becomes something that they all have to have to carry i suppose to some extent yeah and i i really like that it didn't fall into the trap where again with the neat it doesn't give you the neat ending where you know all the abusers repentant in this case the abuser's dead so it's kind of too late for that it doesn't fall into the trap of saying well everything's okay now it talks about how we actually have to deal with that and we have to deal with providing justice where sometimes justice can't be done in a way we like and how we can move on from that and how forgiveness and justice work together i think christians can often fall into the trap of favoring one or the other and forgetting the one that they're not focusing on either they're so focused on justice that they have no concept of forgiveness or so focused on forgiveness that there's no room for justice and actually I think God is very clear that we need both. Yeah, I think um, that brings us on really nicely to the next question I had, which is that I think that that theme that you've mentioned, Andrew, runs really through this book of how do we how do we balance forgiveness and justice? And I suppose who has the right to decide where where that balance falls? Is it is it only the the victim who can decide to to forgive, or is there a societal element of forgiveness? And the same with justice, is that a societal thing or a personal thing? Um, so I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on how that was handled, anything that was sort of raised in the book around that issue. I mean, I don't want to give away the huge spoiler if you call it a spoiler, but they do find a very authentic way to discuss all of this and actually a lot of viewpoints are presented which which I thought was helpful because it's one of those issues where yeah everybody will have their own line as to how far they would say forgiveness is important and how far they would say justice is important and I think they managed to look at that through different stories um, and it, it's not just about the main plot line presenting one side of forgiveness and justice. There's there's a few other examples which which are helpful. I think that the the issues were discussed by characters who have the stories, but they're all like done. There's no one who's just in the midst of that. Mm. Everything hurts, and I think the one thing that's possibly missing is that raw anger that a lot of people feel i think that's something that makes both justice and forgiveness very difficult when when you're in that state of really raw anger of something that's maybe just happened or something where you're still having to be confronted with it every day it's both hard to come to a place of real forgiveness and also hard to seek justice as opposed to revenge and i think that uh, uh, there was a, a certain amount of distance with a lot of the stories that were used it was either something that happened a long time ago and somebody's had a real journey and time to reflect and is coming from a place of wisdom learned from that whereas yeah in in a lot of the dialogue around forgiveness and justice uh you didn't see many characters just biting back and and saying slightly unguarded things which which i would expect in real life I think I generally agree with you, Linda. I think that one of the positives it had from not having such a raw pain was it enabled the perpetrators to be seen very in very grey tones. You know, the, the perpetrator of the abuse is, is unmistakably done evil things, but they are not condemned as evil. I think sometimes it's it's kind of 
taking that step back and I think the book is intentionally taking that step back to look at well once the feelings have subsided how do we heal but I think there is definitely a place to explore actually what about before they subside before forgiveness is a real possibility I mean injustice provokes anger and it should provoke anger and and that is the one emotion I think this book doesn't doesn't massively deal with it seems to me to be a, a conscious choice and I think it's a brave choice, but I think one that does pay off. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with Linda mostly there as well. There's one mention at the end, I think, where Josh, who's, who's the main character, he's come back to this town with this tale of historical sexual abuse that happened to him there as a child, um, mentions that earlier on in his life, he went to a time where he was very angry and because he felt powerless to get justice, to whisper justice, sort of morphed into a wish for revenge, and it became this very toxic thing that caused a lot of harm to himself and causing to harm other people and um, but that is very much commented on as something that does happen in the past and he's worked through I agree there isn't really a look at, at the rawness and immediateness of, of anger and pain that time hasn't had the chance to to work on and bring a new perspective on I mean I think there is a real look at what that process might look like to learn to to walk with pain and accept that you're going to carry that pain with you always but the the newness and rawness of pain that that hasn't yet gone through that process of learning to carry it I suppose I agree that is that is somewhat missing one of the things that is dealt with though similar to that is the the cost of forgiveness and how that can cost both the person who receives forgiveness it can cost to receive forgiveness but it can also cost to give forgiveness um, and there's also a sort of parallel touch on the cost of telling the truth about historic abuse or even present abuse I suppose and there's a really brilliant quote I thought towards the end of the book where um, Josh is talking and explaining his thinking on forgiveness and he says we need forgiveness forgiveness liberates the person who forgives if they're willing to pay the price and forgiveness liberates the person to whom it is offered if they're willing to receive it it's the first one that doesn't get enough attention I said that forgiveness liberates the person who offers it but only if they're willing to pay the price it's one of the biggest lessons I've ever learned when you've been hurt, really hurt by someone, there's a price to be paid if you're going to forgive them. You have to be willing to carry that hurt in yourself rather than lashing out at someone. You've got to contain the hurt, stop it going any further, and then you've got to find a way of releasing it. It's a hard thing to do and just as hard to put into words that make some kind of sense. It's something you grasp with your heart rather than understand with your head. That's I- it. For something that you can't put into words, you did quite well there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Good <laughs> job. <laughs> But yeah, I suppose I wondered what what did we all think about that that kind of commentary on the cost of forgiveness, the cost of telling the truth in the first place, um, and maybe how that might colour the way that we as Christians and as churches should respond when we do hear these stories. I think the cost of forgiveness was discussed quite nicely there. The cost of telling the truth, I mean, you do see it in the, the first character to open up. I think um, something that surprised me um, in the characters who are confronting these things that have happened to them is how willing they are to speak out. But you do see, you do see it have its impact um, in another way. So yeah, I think that they did it did deal with that quite well. And you do see 
that it's not all easy plain sailing when you come out and say what happened to you. Yeah, we live in a in a, what's been termed a post-truth society. And so actually, I think now more than ever, truth can be really costly, whether it's about abuse. And we've seen people come forward and, and tell their stories of abuse. And it is painful for them, not just because revisiting what has happened is painful, but because they have to face the fact that there will be a big chunk of people who don't believe them. You look at cases where women have bravely testified for a, that a Supreme Court nominee has sexually abused them in the past and basically been completely treated as liars and he sits on the Supreme Court making these decisions. I think that even more than ever, telling the truth is hard now and carries a cost because if it's an unpopular truth, it is human nature that, that they'd ra- rather than accept something painful, it's easier to accept that, that or to believe that someone is, is lying or someone is, is making something up that sort of that human nature is hard to overcome if we're hearing something but it's also hard to face if we are are trying to tell the truth about about something awful yeah i think one of the things that hit me around that the cost of truth telling bit was that i think it's very easy for us to, to think that coming to a place of telling the truth about abuse you've experienced in the past is the end of a journey and it's almost a happy ending insofar as there can be a happy ending and I think we need to grasp that sometimes it can actually be the beginning of the journey for victims. And absolutely, we need to believe them. We need to help them get justice if it's still possible for that to happen. But that even if both of those things happen and they are believed and they're heard and justice is served, that that's not the end of the story for them. That they're probably actually at the very beginning of the journey of coming to terms with what happened to them and learning to carry that pain. And that we need to keep being there for people who've told us these stories beyond that initial moment of truth telling um, and to recognise that, that doing so is costly to them. And I, I think it was similar for me with the cost of forgiveness. I think that really hit me that, that forgiveness costs in both directions. And it's, it's not easy. And I, I knew that, but I, I appreciated the way it was kind of laid out. Past of sort of the, the cost of, of telling and accepting the truth um, in the book, there's an, an object that really symbolises the abuse that's gone on. And there's that debate of, well, what should happen to it? Um, I don't want to spoil the book, so I won't go into too many details, but I think that debate that we have to face that sometimes something that to a lot of people is a perfectly harmless um, item or perfectly harmless memory is causing pain and actually in order for us to really face the truth we have to face the things that that we like that actually have become tainted whatever it is that someone is telling us we have to react to that in a real active way we can't just say oh yes we accept that happened we have to prove that we accept that happened and the way we do that is by taking action. Like we mentioned last week, that stuff like taking books off shelves um, in, in the bookshop if an author has been been found to have, have committed abuse. Um, that for us is, is part of that action of saying, no, we're not just paying lip service to it. We believe this happened. And because we believe this happened, we're going to stop selling these books and remove them from sale. And I think that's a really important lesson that I think the book touches on really well. I think that um, set, setting the story in this close-knit community really shows that how the impact of something can sort of carry through the years and and that the object that you'd mentioned symbolizing so much um, abuse and so much hurt it does sort of bring up the question of how you how you live with that and do you like I mean I, I can sort of relate to it living on a small island you're going to be confronted by 
the things that have happened again and again. And there's that either the cost of forgiveness, speaking out, seeking justice, or do you just leave? And kind of both ways are shown in in the story. I've then got kind of a a two-part question. Um, that I, I think the one of the other themes that I really picked up in the book was that it was looking at accepting that this abuse has happened in the story, but also that abuse does happen in our world and it's going to happen. You know, there are lots of steps we can take and we do take a lot of steps now as churches and communities to try and safeguard against it. But unfortunately, we're not going to be able to stop 100% of abuse. And um, so I, I felt like the book kind of raised two questions for me. One was, how do we respond when we're told a story of abuse? What responsibility do we have for what we do with that information to how we respond to someone who's sharing that with us? And there was a lot of focus on people like the minister and the journalist that Linda mentioned earlier and how they had to had to figure out what their responsibility was having been confronted with this story of historical abuse and then the second question was what do sufferers have to do or what can they do with the weight of the hurt they're carrying and is there a way for that to be not not to kind of simplistically go we can wave a magic wand and it will all go away and it won't hurt you anymore but to go is there a way that that the reality of that hurt can be turned to some kind of good for them and for others is there something we can we can do to bring positive out of this really awful thing that's happened. So I think that's my two-part question, is what, what do sufferers do and what do responders do? What responsibilities do we have as responders? Wow, you like easy questions, don't yeah. you? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that um, so one of the key things is that it's not right to keep silent when you're aware of injustice. Like we talked last week about the importance of safeguarding and how if someone tells you something, you only tell the correct person. And that is absolutely true. But there's another case that kicks in, I think, once a story has kind of broken, as it were, where it's being dealt with as much as it can and the survivor wants to go public, for want of a better term. And I think the question then is, well, when we add our voices, are we making the story ours or are we allowing us to amplify them? I think as long as we are amplifying the person who tells the story and they want their story amplified, that is good. And I think that is a responsibility, especially for those of us who have a lot of privilege, to amplify the stories of those who, who have not got privilege, those who, who need their stories heard but don't have the voice themselves. But it can easily turn into a story about us if we're not careful. And I think that's that's a balance to take as we as we tell a story. And in the book, um, that kind of balance is portrayed really well by the... Um, sort of reporter who's um one of the main characters and sort of that's where we've got to tell the story well because if this story goes to the tabloids it'll be all over everywhere and there'll be intrusive interviews and stuff it's about letting josh tell his own story and not letting any other agenda be foisted upon it i think we're very guilty society of um speaking for other people you know people say oh so and so are offended by this but the people aren't actually upset at all while when they are upset the silence and I think that is that is something to be aware of. And I think as Christians, we have a particular responsibility to be authentic bearers of truth in whatever form that is, include, especially when it comes to injustice. You know, Jesus wasn't afraid to speak truth to power, and neither should we be. But speaking truth to power doesn't mean taking a story and making it fit our own ends. It means being available to listen and to be acting purely as an amplifier, purely as, as a, a vehicle to move that story further, not to become agents of the story ourselves. Yeah, I think it's hard as well, though, for the person um, who has suffered the abuse. What's the what's the Christian response? What do you do with all of that hurt? And if you are wanting to share your story, 
what what is the the motive there because when you have a faith there's a whole extra <laughs> whole extra thing to consider there whereas you know for the most part when you look at survivors sharing their story you think yeah they they were they're right to be angry they're right to want to speak out on this but then as christians we kind of have to look inside ourselves a bit and go is this coming from a place of wanting revenge or is this speaking out and bringing justice and wanting to help stop this from happening to anyone else? And that's, a, that's an annoying question to have to ask because <laughs> honestly, like when bad things happen, there's a, there's a big part of me that wants to like call it out and just feel justified and, I don't know, make the the big bad person look bad. I think something I picked up on, which was in the book, which was more on the the responsibility of people hearing stories, actually, but it's kind of similar to what you're saying, is in deciding what to do with that information, beyond the obvious things you need to do, which is pass it on to your safeguarding officer or whoever's relevant, but in terms of how you personally respond to that information, that it's about looking inside yourself and going, why am I reacting the way I'm reacting? And if, obviously, you don't go around shouting a story from the rooftops that the person it happened to doesn't want to share, but if, if this is a story that they do want to tell, but that they need your help to tell, and you're avoiding doing it, where, where's that avoidance coming from? Is it about wanting to protect them? And if so, obviously, there's an element of respecting their wishes, but I suppose it, it, I feel, I feel like the book touched a lot on the possibility of us wanting to avoid telling these stories because they make us uncomfortable and because we're worried they will make the people we're telling them to uncomfortable. There was a really, really brilliant bit I thought in the book where they kind of confronted that and sort of said that as Christians, the story we should be telling all the time is hugely uncomfortable. That the story of the crucifixion is is so far from comfortable and it's so it's all about injustice and about an innocent person being injured and abused and hurt and that some of these stories actually they parallel that story and if we tell them right and we tell them in a in a godly loving way telling that truth doesn't have to be used in a, in a vengeful way it can be used to, to try and make our society the better place to live and our church the better place to to be together in and it can help us to understand something deeper about about the story of of god and the crucifixion and the way he the reasons that Jesus came and carried us in, I suppose. I think that was the, the largest thing I, I sort of took from it on that, that issue of how to respond. I think I have a slightly different opinion from you guys on this generally. <laughs> I can be quite a black and white person. And I know for me, I'm often much more in favour of, of telling the story. In particular, I think I often frame it as well, yes, we shouldn't seek revenge, but they're seeking revenge and seeking justice. And maybe I draw the line a bit further than most in that for me, you know, if, if someone else had been hurt, it would absolutely be seeking justice to not shut up about it, assuming that's what they wanted, until something was done. Well, actually, that, to me, looks the same for us. If, if we are hurt, crying out for justice is crying out to say the world is, that something is wrong here. I don't know. I'm, I tend to have a much um, more black and white view of this, and I'm, I'm sure sometimes that comes back and bites me. <laughs> but um, for me, I often view it as well, Telling the truth is the price the perpetrator pays. If they choose to do these things, then they they have to accept those things may become public knowledge. Now, when it becomes vengeful, when it becomes hunting someone down who has has reformed or has shown re- repentance, or you're going out of your way to, to ruin them, 
I, I think that there's more questions. But for me, when it is simply a case of telling the truth until someone listens, until something is done, then I think actually I, I'm fairly comfortable with it. Yeah, I suppose I would, I would agree that the telling the truth is, is never wrong. If, if somebody has done something, they then can't, surely they've like lost the right to turn around and be like, how, how could you say that I did that when it's word for word exactly what they did. But I think more, if you are the person who has been hurt, I know from personal experience how easy it is to then colour everything that that person does with a certain idea or image and to take perfectly innocent comments that they might make or seemingly innocent things that they do and just spin that into a very different story in your own head. And I think then it's it's very easy to then pass that on to other people. So I think that there is a bit of a tricky line to walk there. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. When when it becomes that you're letting your experience in the past colour the present in that way, then yeah, I can, I can see the issue for me. You know, if someone, and I've been in a situation where I've been in a situation where I've been badly hurt by someone in authority within the church, and actually if anyone asks me, I will be perfectly honest with them about what happened. I don't go around choosing to, to say it all the time, and that's a personal choice for me, but neither do I, I hide it. And I think if what I, by telling the truth, I negatively affect that person. For me, that is their responsibility. They are the one who chose to commit a hurtful act. And I don't know. It's a really difficult topic, this, um, which is kind of why we've done two podcasts on it. But I don't know. But I know I definitely lean more on that. Actually, I think it can be damaging when we start focusing too much on the survivor having to forgive which is absolutely forgiveness sets you free if you pay the cost, as the book says. Um, but when we don't also say, actually, but has justice been done? Has the truth been told? And not just are other people safe, but is the person who's been hurt, are they made whole as best they can? Not the only God can make us whole in the end, but have we done everything we can to make them as safe and as whole as we can and to make them feel heard and listened to? I think in my opinion, too often, that doesn't happen. I think too often the person is left feeling broken and feeling like they're not cared about anymore because they've told their story. People have decided that enough has been done, but they're not, they've not had the chance to, to really feel that justice has been done. I totally agree that it is, it's always okay to want justice. It's always okay to tell the truth, to tell the truth as many times and in as many places as you need to. I mean, I think there comes a point where that can become unhealthy for the sufferer, but that has to be a call. No one else can make that judgment call to them. I absolutely, you know, think as Christians, we are called to forgive. I don't think we're called to forgive at a particular point. I think forgiveness is a journey and it's a process and it's okay to be angry and it's okay to want to see justice done and to want to see fairness done. And it's okay to, to tell your truth and to, to speak your truth loudly. I, I absolutely would, would wholeheartedly agree with that. I think I was getting at two things. One is the going back to what you're saying about the potential cost of telling the truth. And I don't think that is just the potential kind of social cost of not being believed or being judged. I think there's an emotional cost to, to telling the truth about this kind of stuff. And it can be, it can be really, really difficult for someone who's been through this to, to speak truth. And I think sometimes actually the, the opposite can happen where we're, we're pushed to 
tell the truth too soon and sort of wrong reasons um, before we're actually ready to do so. And I think, I think we have to be really careful around that. That if we're responding to someone coming to us with these stories, we need to respond respecting their wishes. And if they're not ready for that, that story to be told, then we don't do so. But that if, if we're not doing so, we're thinking about about why not and is it because that's what the person wants or is it because we're afraid of the consequences or we're uncomfortable with the story or we're worried about making other people feel uncomfortable because those are wrong reasons not to tell a story you know we should be we should be comfortable as christians talking about uncomfortable suffering because that's that's at the core of what we believe going back to to all the stuff that's happening in america i actually saw a a facebook post on sunday by governor b where he was kind of challenging Christians and going, you know, after all the unrest in America, um, which is obviously around issues of, of long-standing racism and oppression and, and actual killing of the, of the black community by, by police and by people in authority and people who should be protecting them. And he was saying, has your church been talking about this with everything that's going on? And if not, why not? And um, because churches do talk about, about global issues of injustice all the time. And if we're not talking about this as a church in the UK, why is that? Is that because we're uncomfortable with it? And if, if that's the reason, then we need to be facing and we need to be willing to have these conversations as, as Christians about, about all issues of global injustice, not just the ones that kind of photograph nicely or that we're more comfortable dealing with. Okay, so one of the things that I really liked about the book, again, I liked a lot of things about the book, was and it goes back to what I was saying right at the beginning about how I felt like there were a lot of kind of simplifications that it could have fallen into that it didn't. And one of those was that the the sort of main sort of abuse between that happened to Josh, the the man who perpetuated that isn't actually painted as a monster. I mean he's done really, really horrendous things to a number of, of young boys. Um, and he's done them in, in very nasty, aggressive ways, and he's used his position of power and he's used his faith to to further the abuse and also to protect himself from the abuse but it doesn't paint him as just black it paints him as someone who was struggling and and hurting himself not in a way that in any way excuses him and what he's done is very much not excused but it acknowledges that he was a human being not a monster i suppose um and that he was also a good father and that it, it doesn't fit neatly into just a box of, of blackness and evil and it faces the fact that it would be sort of simplistic to dismiss his christianity as, as just mere hypocrisy that was used as a cover that it's quite possible that actually he genuinely did hold his faith and over time his faith actually compounded the abuse and contributed to his justification of his abuse and that we can't sort of say that any christian who does something heinously wrong isn't a Christian or, or doesn't believe that it is more complex than that. <coughs> Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought the book handled that really well. It was a surprise to me. I mean, I don't know what I was expecting from the cover, um, but the, the book wasn't what I expected in the slightest. But yeah, it was, it surprised me in a good way. And I think one of those ways was, again, it's portrayal of the perpetrator and the victim neither of them being yeah completely uh clear-cut goody or baddie i mean you see the not perfect victim who doesn't respond in the perfect way and and in the same way like it doesn't paint the perpetrator as this big bad evil monster but at the same time it doesn't shy away from the complete like evil of what it is that he does yeah i think that one thing the book does really well it does say deal with the humanity of the perpetrator. And I think it's important for us to remember that we are all all in the image of God. I think it's also important to remember that 
in some ways it feels like monsters do walk among us there are people who have become so um i don't know the word so messed up and twisted by by the world by other humans hurting them by um personality disorders or whatever it is that their actions are calculated to hurt and i'm glad the book doesn't excuse any of it and i think that's what we have to be important not to do when we're looking for the goodness in people which is is great and we should um we shouldn't turn that into so no one's ever truly bad people are truly bad people do truly bad things and that's why we all need jesus we all need jesus equally we're all sinners um and for some people their sort of the way they're sitting is hurting others immensely and i think being aware of the background of of someone who commits acts like that is important in helping to understand but it, i'm glad in the book it makes very little difference to the consequences as it were the consequences of the action have to be severe enough they have to be as serious as the offense and for example the case we talked about last week of jean vanier he did some amazing work um, you know, the, the larger community for, for people with learning difficulties, they are incredible. But that doesn't negate, we can't take things he's done that are good or any particular reason why he may have gone down that path to in any way lessen the consequence. The consequence is, unfortunately, that his legacy is crashed. His legacy, in human terms, will always be remembered. Yes, I believe God forgives, and I believe God can forgive any of us if we come to him. But uh, when it comes to on earth, actually, the the fact is that there's nothing he can do on earth right now because he has died to reclaim that legacy. And I, I think that's fair. I think that it's fair that if you do that damage on earth, uh, we are only on earth for a limited time. And the consequences are ones we have to live with and we'll live on after we die. When we get to heaven, God can wipe everything away. But I think we've got to be careful not to do that on earth, actually, because what that does is silence victims. And if one thing I take from, from the gospel, from the story of Jesus, is that Jesus is never for the establishment or never for the convenient option. He is always for the victim and the downtrodden. And that sometimes comes at the expense of the convenience, of the comfort, of the what may seem of the opportunity for redemption of the of the wrongdoer. Of course, Jesus gives the opportunity of redemption for anyone. But when he walked on earth, the the Pharisees who were going to stone the woman, he didn't give them a big lecture about why they were wanting to stone her and where they may have been misled or whatever, he just told them basically no. Um, he, he showed them that what they were doing was wrong. His focus was on the woman. I think our focus should always be on the victim. I think this was one of my, my favourite bits of the book, absolutely, because I was very impressed by the way that was handled. But I, I felt like he managed to, to acknowledge the humanity and the, the complexity of perpetrators without taking away from the absolute definitive blackness of their actions and what they've done um, and I think that can be a really hard line to walk where you you don't like Andrew was saying take away from victims um, take away from their voices or their suffering um, but you still acknowledge that it's more complicated than that but the actual the situation and the actions are not more complicated than that they are purely black and white it's just the person behind them might be more complicated than that and I appreciated that he managed to handle that really 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 well I thought um, and I also appreciated that again in terms of I do feel like Christian films and books both in the past have fallen into some sort of quite lady stereotypes around kind of thinking that Christians are all good and atheists are all bad as we mentioned before and again it, it didn't sort of lazily go 
well, this person was a really bad person, so the fate he he expressed must have been entirely just a hypocrisy that he was he was lying about and using for his own kind of devious ends. It sort of looked at the way that his faith might have actually impacted his behaviour. And that's not to say that, that that's a true faith, obviously. You know, I don't believe that, that God or Jesus ever wants, wants someone to act in that way. And I don't believe that, that truly knowing them could possibly guide you in that direction. But that a faith could become warped to, to be used to justify really horrendous actions, I suppose. Well, if you want proof of that, you just need to look at slavery. The church upheld the system of slavery for hundreds of years. We may pat ourselves on the back that we stopped that the, the church was a key part of stopping it in the end, but that's not where we started. And I think to acknowledge that people can get the wrong end of the stick with faith, can let their own personal temptations and desires interfere with what they're receiving, is just patently true. And I think again, the, the book really covers that well. Um, so yeah, yeah, I agree with you, Georgia. A final question, and then I think we'll bring this to an end because it's been quite a heavy episode. So I suppose the way I read this book was was more of like a fable or maybe even an allegory, I suppose. He mentioned several times in it the Pilgrim's Progress and sort of references different parts of that. It it felt to me like maybe what what Chickie was attempting was almost like a modern a modern version of that, not not to write a story that was meant to be a really realistic representation of of what would happen if these circumstances unfolded, but but more sort of fable to, to bring us to an understanding of issues around actually not just around abuse and individual forgiveness, but maybe more larger than that around God's forgiveness, what it means for Jesus to have taken on our sins, what it means for God to forgive and what God's forgiveness might look like and what forgiveness might cost God as well as the way it costs us on an individual basis. I probably would say that actually the, the fact that I read it that way probably left me with both some positive and some negative from the book, but that was definitely kind of my interpretation. I think I think that the the characters that that chick create are really compelling i really enjoy getting to know them getting to know the specific situation and sort of using that as a vehicle to understand some broader truth about forgiveness and sin and and the reality of what our faith means yes i would agree with that the characters are so interesting and the the number of characters where he'll just drop in one little detail about their lives before and you kind of want a sequel because there's so many little things that are mentioned about these characters that aren't even fully unpacked. I guess the the story would have to be really, really long to go into all of it. Particularly about the vicar who is sort of almost, well, not narrating the story, but it's very much told from her perspective. Even though she, she drives the story, there's little details about her life that are touched on. And yeah, I guess I'm just kind of waiting for the sequel because I think there's so many more details that you could unpack about her, about the reporter. I must say my favourite character is Billy, the, the church caretaker. I find him. Oh, yeah. He's, he's both a humorous character, but also a character that really, really tells a story of his own. And you could have a book about him. And I know that, that Chick Yule have written two other, other novels, which are rooks at dusk and the mystery of matthew gold and they're both also published by instant apostle and i haven't had the pleasure of reading them yet but you know i'd i definitely would love to see more more from him and particularly yes i agree linda sequel please (laughs) yes i think going back to the the reason i perhaps read it more the fable was i think how heavy it was on the symbolism um 
particularly there's there's a whole bit with Josh he he walks from his home in the south of England to Tenford which is in the north of England um to kind of finally confront and tell the story of the abuse that happened to him when he was growing up in Penford and he carries a rucksack full of rocks on his back the whole way and just as he kind of enters the, the town boundaries of Penford the straps of the rucksack break and it falls into the water and that's obviously very very symbolic to I suppose his, his burden and the pain he's been carrying finally being lifted and him being willing almost to let go of it, actually, and to, to release it, and to, I suppose, lay it at the feet of the cross, almost. Um, but there were a few moments like that where symbolism was quite heavily used, which I think it, it made it feel more kind of like a fable, or, or an allegory to me. And I, I think the other thing that was very fable-ish, the coin word, um, in my mind, was that it, it definitely draws out a moral of the story in quite a pointed way that you perhaps wouldn't in a novel. Well, actually, Christian novels often do, but it generally bothers me, because it, it feels kind of clunky and I, I forgave it in this because it felt more like a fable and it's normal in a fable to, to bring out a very moral point at the end. Cool, so as usual I'm going to ask us all to rate it out of five stars. You're looking at me. I am looking um, at you. I would give it four and a half out of five. I think it's a really well told story. The characters and the setting are compelling. The storytelling is really good. I think the dialogue and the writing can be a little clunky at times, but you know, when writing such a difficult book, you can definitely forgive that. I tend to find a book you can you can forgive a lot if the story's compelling and this story is compelling and so I can definitely forgive the little I need to. I think I'll go with the four because again, yeah, I think the story I found it very easy to keep reading it created a lot of intrigue i wanted to know what was going on i wanted to know what happened next um and find out all the answers to all of the questions that it raises pretty early on so from a storytelling perspective i thought that was really good and like i said i loved all of the characters but i think my one criticism is it needs a sequel um <laughs> i i have so much more i want to know about these characters so yeah four out of five yeah i think i would also give it a four there are places where it's a bit clunky um perhaps but overall, I, I really appreciated the greatness of the book. I felt it took on a really difficult topic and it, it never fell into, into stereotyping or into easy explanations. It, it really, I suppose, bit into it and explored all the depths of, of what is a really, really difficult thing to talk about. And one of the things that frustrates me in my job is that I can't dictate what people read. If, if people could come to me at the bookshop more like if I was a pharmacist and I could kind of prescribe them books, it would kind of make my life. Um, and if I were ever in the, in the position of control and power, I would like to be where I could do that. Um, this is one of the books that I think almost everyone should read. I would love to see this book read really widely in the Christian community because I think it could transform the way our churches look and the way we we approach a lot of issues, not just in terms of the really big abuse stuff, but in terms of the more little hurts and grievances that happen in church families. I, I think we could, we could learn something about how to, to handle all of that and to approach these issues with, with an understanding of the complexity of them and an appreciation of all the different layers of hurt involved. I think that brings us about to an end. Just as we did last week, I just wanted to mention a few books for anyone who 
maybe have experienced some kind of abuse themselves, anyone who wants to learn more about it, because I do think that um, the managed work into St. Peter's is, is genuinely a really good read too, to come to an understanding of abuse and also actually to, to help heal from abuse to some extent, but it is obviously a, a fictional book. So given what a weighty topic this is, I just wanted to mention a few resources on a more factual nature for anyone looking for a greater understanding or anyone who is seeking sort of help for themselves or for someone they care about. So the first one I wanted to mention is called Understanding Sexual Abuse, a guide for ministry leaders and survivors. And it's published by Muddy Pearl. It's written by Tim Hine. Tim is a minister, but he's also a survivor himself of childhood sexual abuse. It, it focuses very much on specifically childhood sexual abuse, which is obviously what's dealt with in, in the book we've been reviewing. Um, but what's interesting about that as a book is it's simultaneously meant for ministry leaders and for anyone wanting to further their understanding and to help walk with people who are recovering from past abuse and for the actual survivors themselves as a, as a sort of self-help book. And I, I appreciate that it, it's doing both of those jobs in one. Um, the second one I wanted to mention is called Breakthrough, The Art of Surviving. It's by Giles D. Laskell and it's published by Instant Apostle. Again, Giles is a minister and an abuse survivor and in this case he's also a psychotherapist. So he's very well qualified to write about this. Um, and that one isn't about any particular type of abuse but it again is focused very much on childhood abuse specifically and overcoming it. Um, and I think that's written really to speak to, to survivors. But obviously, if you're someone who, who knows a survivor who you want to help, then that could also help you gain an understanding. And there's also a book that I'd like to recommend. Um, the book is called Wounded by God's People. It's by Anne Graham Lott, published by Fodder and Stoughton. Um, if you don't know Anne, you do know her father, who is Billy Graham. It's a fantastic book about what it's like to be hurt by by God's people hurt by the church. Um, so it's a, a more broad stroke, not necessarily discussing abuse, but I think uh, more Christians we like to admit are hurt by the church in some way. And even um, particularly if it is a case of, of abusing, that's a, a resource that could be very helpful. So uh, just to finish off, the book we've been reviewing today is The Man Who Broke Into St. Peter's by Chick Yule. It is published by Instant Apostle and the RRP is $8.99, so it's very well priced. Uh, we really do encourage you to get it from your local Christian bookshop. Um, and it's even better because Chick is um, donating all the author royalties from the sale of the book to a charity called Four Refugees towards work enabling communities across the country to welcome and support refugee families. So that just makes it even better. You can uh, buy this from your local Christian bookshop if you don't know where that is. Do a bit of Googling or look on the Sacristy Press website, which has a list of bookshops that are delivering. If you can't find one close to you that will deliver, contact Church's Bookshop at churchesbookshop.im or on Facebook, and we will be able to sort something out for you. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Anvil, or maybe enjoyed it isn't quite the word, if you're intrigued by this episode of The Anvil, um, then you can find us on social media. We're facebook.com forward slash The Anvil. We're at churchesbookshop.im. Scroll down to click on the link for The Anvil podcast. And you can find us on Acast, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts, and some others as well. Maybe you could subscribe there and, uh, and have a listen each week when we release on a Wednesday. For now, though, that's Linda. That's Georgia. That's Andrew. And we've been the Anvil Podcast and Church's Bookshop, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.